Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us for the weekly update here on a Friday morning broadcast. Mr. Holmline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you. Always good to be with you. Pretty interesting move, putting the Haftet November uh, ceremony back in the old building in Queens, huh? Well, it was symbolically very significant in the fact that you had 60 ambassadors there and others, including the Vice President of the United States, uh, reaffirming commitment to Israel and uh, looking back over the years, the interim years, uh, I spoke at the uh, at the reception and the uh, uh, and pointed out that for us this was not a celebration; it was a commemoration, because we know that peace did not emerge because of the resolution, but rather the Arab states rejected it and went to war. And you think of the twenty thousand plus Israelis who were killed in defense of Israel over the years, and in all the terrorist attacks, uh, all unnecessary. And 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 you think of the losses even for the Palestinians who Seventeen, you know, someone from this generation would find it, you know, most bizarre that who voted positively to to um, establish a state or to make a partition plan that would include a Jewish state. I would say probably Russia, hmm. uh, and uh, and this is under Stalin. Remember, right. uh, today looking back, you might say Venezuela, you might say others right. who voted for it, but then they were it was a different government, different time. Um, so a lot of the Latin American states really played a critical role in, in casting the votes. I think there were only two um, African countries that voted positive. Right, and, and, and you didn't have uh, many of them in the United Nations. Right. The membership of the United Nations was, right. you know, maybe 40% or less than what it is today. And the, the um, you know, the, the coming out of World War II was still the aftermath uh, of the Holocaust. One would thought that you would have had such an overwhelming response, but the fact that they had to squeeze out the last votes uh, was very telltale also. Yeah, boy, oh boy. Um, by the way, and you mentioned the vice president's speech uh, that took place at the commemoration. I, I'm, I've basically had it with the embassy Jerusalem <laughs> issue. I, I, I think I think it's a bigger folly under this administration than others because of the reality or the or the realistic belief that, in fact, they would really move it or really approve of the move. I assume that when the 4th of December arrives, the waiver will be signed. I don't make that assumption right now. You know, the vice president again reiterated what, what things that he said earlier about the intention. I think that we that we face various options. One is, as you said, that he will just simply waive it again. Two, that uh, he doesn't waive it, and then we have to deal with the ramifications of that decision. 
then there's the possibility that he could uh, issue a waiver and say that, that we're recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, uh, but we're not, not saying to move the embassy, saying that the future boundaries will be determined in negotiations and push the idea that negotiations should take place. Uh, there are and there and the various mutations in between of what of what could happen. So I certainly don't give up. I think it is the intention to move the embassy. Uh, I don't think they should be intimidated by you know the threats. When the president went to Kotel, as I think I said here before, and you know put on a yarmulke and dominate after the world declared, you know the UNESCO voted that it's not a Jewish Christian holy site, that it's a, a Muslim holy site, and all of the statements. And yet he went there, put on the yarmulke, said if that was a bolder move, I think, and because. Uh, of just doing it and, and standing up for what they believe, you didn't see a single demonstration. There wasn't a single manifestation. And, and it's a question of how you do it, not, in this case, I think, what you do. And the, there's a necessity at some point just to say, this is it, we're going to do it, do it smart, and I think it won't it provoke a, a, an unnecessary reaction. The third option that you just mentioned, this recognition of Jerusalem, negotiations will determine, et cetera, et cetera, is, is there any administration that ever came close to that or that, in fact, you know, made that declaration? Any U.S. administration that came close to that type of uh, of dealing with the situation in that way? Yes, in 1995, and I, I one of my proudest moments in, in all the years because it was legislation we really pushed and and uh, an events that uh, we organized that when Congress overwhelmingly passed the Jerusalem Bill, which mandated that that United Jerusalem is the law of the land, and President Clinton let it become the law, and then we held an event in the rotunda of the Capitol, the only one since then, not, not one event has been held there. And many senators, many members of Congress came, leaders of, of many faiths, and they gathered there. And, and Prime Minister Rabin told me that if we got this legislation passed, he would come. And I called him the night that it was uh, being voted on, and I said, you made a promise. And he came. And it was it was so moving to hear his remarks about Jerusalem and the uh, overall program uh, it was highly emotional, and th- so you have uh, a history and, and other resolutions, and the, the law is still the law, but it built in a waiver for the president, right. which is what he's exercising. That's the basis of the waiver. All right, so I'm leaving this part of our conversation with 33% waiver, 33% the what you just described, and 33% moving the embassy. Those are the chances between now and the 4th of, of December. I don't know where the other one percent goes, but I guess that'll be the, the <laughs> determining factor. I would guess. But, uh, but yeah, I think that I think that the, all the options are open. The vice president pretty strong, and have they've said all along it's not a question of if or or but when. And I think that is the, the policy. And maybe if there have been you know less talk and they had just done it right away in the beginning, uh, you know the issue would have been resolved. But but the the interim step that I mentioned has additional implications. So, for instance, the the issue of the passports once oh, the declaration right. is made right. and and saying that the you know the final borders will be subject to negotiations. Um, so, passports of Americans born in Jerusalem will say Jerusalem, Israel. Right. Um, were you sitting there saying to yourself that the vice president looks very presidential? When I saw the uh, uh, when I saw the video yeah. of the event, it, it struck me. I think for the first time that this man really could be. I mean, I don't know if he could win the win the election, but he'd be he'd be a pretty dignified president. You got to admit, <laughs> he's a very fine person, very committed, very pro-Israel, very uh, close to many Jews. Has uh, committed Jews working for him. Uh, he's um, 
He looks the part. If that's yeah, what you're saying. Exactly right. <laughs> that's exactly yeah. Thank you. That's a good assessment. Two more things about the events this week. Number one. Uh, so explain to me what happened. I understand the commemoration, not the celebration on Wednesday. Now on on Tuesday, rather. Yeah, that was Tuesday, right? That was the day before right. the twenty ninth. That was Tuesday. What happens at the UN Wednesday? That that's a Palestinian. What a Palestinian it's an annual ritual. Uh, it's Palestine Day, I think they call it, or something. There was. And, it looked like there was nobody in the room. Well, there's never anybody in the room, and the and the fact is, why don't the they have? Why don't they much, have? Were, were in most cases milder than what we've had in years past. You had reaffirmations, you know, the Palestinian rights, and et cetera. But um, you know, th- there is a changing attitude, and people are getting tired of it, and they look at, at what's happening. You saw this week between Fatah and Hamas. But one, but one second, one second before we do that, I'm just confused. Why would the room be empty when there are Middle Eastern countries and others, sponsors of terror, etc.? That that because are- people come in and make a statement, and then leave. I mean, the same thing in Congress. You have the same thing uh, going on all the time at the United Nations General Assembly, except when you have an event or there's a particular vote that, that comes up and you have a full session. This is a commemorative session. This is not right. convening of the General Assembly. Okay, and no one's insulted if no one, if, if those who participate don't sit there the entire morning. Right. Type of thing. All right and, and, and the other thing is, and I saw this in the Jerusalem Post, I'm sure you did, the UN General Assembly voted overwhelmingly to disavow Israeli ties to Jerusalem. It's funny, you just mentioned Jerusalem as part of this you know, possible compromise position on the part of the president. Uh, Israeli ties to Jerusalem as part of six anti-Israel resolutions approved Thursday in New York. The vote was 151 in favor, six against, nine abstentions. These six against, by the way, I always love pointing this out, Canada, the Marshall Islands, Micronesia, Nauru, the U.S., and Israel itself. Uh, what, what's going on here? Why, why are we celebrating the Jewish state and essentially its birth at the U.N., and then the next day... You know, passing a resolution like this. It's an annual ritual. I'm not even sure anybody reads anymore. And I had meetings, as I said, this week. We spoke to many of the uh, ambassadors and stuff, and we raised the UNESCO resolution. We raised other things, and they, they look at you in many cases and say, really, that's what it says? And it, it's an automatic vote that the ambassadors don't come. They just uh, send somebody. But, but notice you, you're missing... Countries like Britain right. or Australia, which always vote uh, with Israel or have, and and others who, who said they would not join the ritual, the annual ritual. Oh, Australia abstained, right? But the others were against, right? Right, and that's that's it is a distinction that's important right. that the countries have to know, and we certainly follow up with them about it. But this is, uh, you know, it's one of the anomalies of the United Nations, and more, and and still an indication that. Uh, Israel's not fully accepted. Yeah, no question about that. But the overwhelming number was startling after the big, I know it wasn't a celebration, but after the big commemoration mm-hmm. at the old UN. It's just, you know, it's a it's a startling number when you think about it. Uh, we had Gidon Sar on yesterday. Uh, I asked him a question. I said, is it easier to help the state of Israel in government or outside of government? <laughs> and, you know, how how did he after having left the government a few years back, stay in the limelight or in the game uh, to this degree that they are considering him, I mean, in the Israeli media, certainly considering him as a favorite to be the next prime minister of Israel. And underscoring it is a poll, which I think has been published or will be, that shows Yeshatid, uh, led by Lapid and Likud, tied, Wow, I think, at 25 seats. 
But under uh, the leadership of Saar, they would win additional seats. Meaning, be, meaning Likud would win. Likud would gain additional seats. Wow. Uh, under Yisrael Katz, another candidate showed it would get less. And obviously there's no election now. Bibi is still the, uh, the single person who's most uh, supported as a prime minister. But Gidon Saar is up there. And uh, certainly within the Likud, he seems to be the most uh, popular. And don't forget, while he's out of office, he has been working... The um, he can go to all the small communities. He can campaign. I met yesterday with Avi Gabay, the head of the Labor Party, who was very articulate, very presentable. Um, had a we had a very good uh, session with him, uh, and the, the he said that he spends his time every night going into a Likud stronghold. He said, "I go to places where we have labor gets four percent, six percent, eight percent to present our case." So obviously, they're all. Uh, now trying to build their bases, anticipating elections. Most have said within a year. And yeah, yesterday uh, he said he'll wait till 2019 when it's supposed to be, but that sounded a little tongue in cheek, right? <laughs> well, no, I think you know they they, they were all saying he also wants time to right. build up his franchise. So, so when, when he leaves government and says got to spend more time with family, while others may actually spend more time with family, he was actively visiting cities and campaigning. Well, no, he he, he got uh, married and um, he. I think he did want to spend time, and he, um, you know, often you have to step out of position. I know, but in Israeli politics, how many guys step out and are never heard from again? Nobody writes about them. They have zero impact outside of office. Well, when, but when you're polling high in the internal polls of, of Likud, obviously you're going to get attention. Right. And, you know, he's he's been quietly doing this. He, he was not in the papers for a long period of time after he stepped out. And... You know, the, the, there are always reasons or other considerations or things perhaps that they he has to work out or just as he said he wanted to do. Some of them step out because they, they need to make money. And, uh, you know, being government doesn't actually provide you with much of a, an income. So it's more complicated than just the question of, of getting visibility. Now you see it right. and you say you feel like he's been in the limelight all this time and you know people who are close to him, so they talk about it also. It doesn't mean that uh, the media was covering him or, or others. Now, obviously, we're seeing more and more speculation about elections and about what's coming up because of the investigations. Um, so, By the way, do you know if he has similar views to Bibi when it comes to security of Israel and when it comes to negotiations? I think so. America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at NahumSiegel.com. On the NahumSiegel Network and, of course, on the beloved NSN app, Malcolm Holine is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Tell me about Bibi's trip to Africa, probably to countries that voted against Jerusalem and Israel yesterday, I would bet. Uh these are people, yeah, most of them traditionally vote, but it's an automatic vote with ambassadors, you know, when we confront them on these votes and stuff. Uh, I wish I could share with you some of the answers that we get. <laughs> we, had no, we had no idea of <laughs> what was taking place, right? <laughs> he went to, he went to, um, he went to the installation of President Kenyatta in Kenya. Uh, he was in Nairobi. He did not attend the actual swearing-in ceremony because of security reasons, but he did have lunch, and he met with uh, the leaders of Gabon, Uganda, Tanzania, uh, Zimbabwe, um, I think South Sudan, he said, and, and uh, Botswana and Namibia. Yeah, I know he met the prime minister of Ethiopia. 
And uh, this is a, another sign of the growing acceptance. Uh, but the best indication was that Rwanda, there's an Israeli embassy going to open in Rwanda. Uh, and the, um, Mexico, by the way, announced last week that they would no longer vote for these automatic resolutions against Israel or, or would not vote against Israel. But turn their tide. Well, maybe visited there, if you remember, and the, the new leadership and everybody comes in with their own, every new president comes in with their own priorities and nice. understands what they stand to gain from the ties to Israel, as do many of the African countries. And, uh, you know, many of them don't take the UN vote seriously. Um, uh, I think that it's something we try to educate them about them, about what the significance is. And frankly, we've got to stop letting them off the hook with the excuses that they, you know, usually put forward. Understood. Um, so he goes, and uh, as you said, he attends the ceremony there, and it continues to, um, I mean, there's a point that I, uh, you know, you and I, in different ways, continue to make. Uh, it continues to show the, the I don't want to say desperate, but the, the need, I won't say desperate need, but the need for African nations that turn to Israel, whether it comes, to, whether it's because of technology or water or resources or medical help, etc., etc. Uh, there's a, a a reality that continues to be learned by the leadership of those countries. Is that? And I you? think there are, are other considerations. Uh, one of them being the common enemy, and that is people will be surprised. Iran. Right. These countries, um, uh, but generally in Africa today, the the big issue that they raise with us is the danger posed by Iran. And just look at the developments uh, over the last week, where you have Russia signing a deal with Egypt to use their their bases. Remember, Egypt is an African country. Um, the the South, uh, Sudan made an agreement that that Russia can build a base in a military base in Sudan, which of course puts Egypt in a much more difficult position. Um, the, the Turks are building a bases in Somalia. You have Iran trying to undermine regimes and supporting Islamist groups in many places. You have ISIS still active. Uh, there, so Africa faces real internal and external challenges. What is Russia? Fundamentalism is, is is prevalent. What does Russia offer in exchange? Uh, money? Is it money or resources or what? Well, for some, I think uh, some are flirting with them to send a message to America not to take them for granted. Uh, I would say, in the case of Egypt, for instance, in the next days they may announce that they're going to cut three hundred million dollars from the aid we give them. And the military aid because of human rights violations. Because of this deal? Because of the deal with Russia? Because of human rights violations. And this is such a terrible message to the people of Egypt after this vicious attack that took more than 300 lives. And knowing that the country faces on all its borders, on from the Sinai, from Gaza, from uh, the Libyan side, obviously, from the South, from the Sudanese side, threats. To its, its existence, as well as the internal threat posed by the Muslim Brotherhood, still in ISIL and in, in, in uh, based in Sinai, and they, they are furious about this, obviously. And you know, sometimes they'll they'll flirt with Russia to send a message to America that we're not in your pocket. And uh, I hope that the administration will rethink this uh, this move. Uh, it's not because we ignore human rights issues. We think they're very important, but you got to look at the total picture and say, what is the most effective way we can talk to them? And, and, and these countries, many of them are making progress on human rights, but, you know, you can't turn a situation around overnight. And when you face the kind of threat that they do internally, you know, it's, it's, 
a very a very difficult uh, situation. Okay, but if if in fact this deal with Russia would not be happening, would the United States be using human rights as a reason to withhold money from Egypt? It has nothing to do with it. it has was, no, it's has, been in the process has, long before. So, all, so the only thing you're advocating for then is because because of the key relationship that the U.S. has with Egypt, and we see now how much more necessary it is because of this deal with Russia, they should maybe rethink the way they're handling Egypt's violations of human rights. How we handle the overall relationship of which this is one component. And and we raise human rights issues when we visit every country and any country uh, where there are gross violations. We're not uh, dismissing it. But you, you got to put each thing into context, and you have to say, and, and I, I'll tell you that Egypt is only one example. I, I hear from uh, many of the leaders, um, and, you know, we still engage with people whose, uh, you know, violations are, are quite gross, and we try to encourage them. Look, Egypt played a key role in bringing Fatah and Hamas together to try and uh, work out uh, that uh, some resolution, and we see now that it's stalled, that Hamas um, and, and Fatah people came back without any progress in the last meeting in Cairo, but at the same time, they they are, are denying, Fatah is trying to put in all the thousands of civil servants in Gaza that have been out of work since 2007 when, when Hamas took over, and they've been paying them not to go to work all these years. Now they're telling them to go back, and Fatah, Hamas is saying, Blocking them and saying that there are tens of their thousands of people who are running things that remain, and this is a, a standoff that could undermine uh, uh, the whole deal. Uh, the, you know, these uh, tens of thousands of civil servants, part of the corrupt uh, system that uh, dominates the Palestinian politics and reality. So, that, you know, each thing is so complicated. Each issue, people deal with things in, with such simplicity when, uh, in fact, the, the, both the stakes and the issues are, are of such great significance. Yeah, no question about that. I mean, all the compl- these, these details really do matter. You can't, you know, people can go into the newspapers, they can make, um, you know, statements, but in most cases, it's know-nothings who, who just simply, you know, pontificate without thinking about neither the ramifications nor the complications that, uh, and in the meantime, and what I think is most disturbing to me of, of, of the events of recent days is that what happened in the 1920s with sykes Cohen, the British and the French, you know, divided up the Middle East after the Ottoman Empire's defeat, we're seeing it now. Look what's happening. Russia, Iran, and Turkey are dividing up the Middle East. They're creating spheres of influence. They're enshrining their roles in Syria, for instance. So Russia has bases, air, naval, and military bases, uh, naval and, and uh, air bases, uh, uh, Turkey bases, Iran bases. And Iran, this week, made demands of the Syrian government for its support, which includes the right to mine uh, phosphates, including uranium, that they want a 50-year lease on uh, mil- uh, military bases, that they uh, are, are demanding uh, all sorts of things from uh, rights from uh, Iran. The chief of the staff, or the military chief of staff, went to Assad uh, with these, with, um, uh, these bases, uh, these, the, these demands. So, you know, we're seeing new realities being created, and that's why you look at the increasing Russian footprint 
of having the bases in Syria, the bases in Sudan. These are things that they had strived for always throughout history because this was their soft underbelly, Turkey, and now they've neutralized a lot of this, and, and Putin's doing it on a shoestring of money. Nothing. Why, why now? Why wasn't it a year ago, two years ago? Like, why are we seeing a deal they with... didn't have the possibility. He couldn't have made a deal with Egypt a year ago? Well, they did make it in the past. Remember, Russia was there, and they kicked him out. And now they're being invited back, and in part because of, I think, policies uh, that were pursued in the past, and, and their sense, and at least that's what I hear from them, from different Arab leaders, is their, their sense of frustration right now. And there are enough countries willing to make these deals. In other words, we always, we, we always conjecture that plenty of these countries want nothing to do with Russia and or Iran, but there are plenty that do, and there's enough space to go around, so to speak. But they, you can't compare what Russia can offer to what the United States can offer. And that's number one. Number two, many of the Arab countries, for instance, still believe them to be godless communists. I mean, I've heard it. But the, the political necessities or perspectives or trying to create uh, alternative pressure to get uh, uh, the U.S. Uh, to get U.S. policy or European policy uh, change um, dictate that they they do it, and they they when you're fighting for your existence, you you reach out for to whoever you can in order to uh, support you. And if they feel that uh, you remember during during the um, years of the Obama administration, yeah. they felt total alienation Correct. and flirted with anybody I, I, because they right. and, and everybody, and, and that includes going strengthening the relationship with Israel, which is uh, stronger with Egypt than, than it has ever been. Well, I was just going to say that there is a certain unreliability from the U.S., which I don't know if the Trump administration has, you know, completely recovered from, has, you know, in, in terms of the way certain countries felt abandoned during the Obama administration. And that, that Well, can... I think it's, it, there isn't a deliberate policy of disengagement, uh, um, at least we didn't think so, but the manifestation of it, in many cases, it's being cited as, as a continuation. Some say that, look, you still have Obama people in the government making decisions. You see the, the, the um, turmoil in the State Department and the reports now that Tillerson will be out, and right. Mr. Pompeo, who is a great guy, coming in, um, and Senator Cotton going to, to Pompeo's position at CIA, as head at CIA. Uh, these would be positive changes. I think they, their perspectives are, are somewhat different. Tillerson... Um, uh, then they walked back some of the reports about Tillerson's removal. I think that they want him to resign. I think he's not going to resign. He'll have to be fired. Uh, but the likelihood, as we said a long time ago, would be that he would be out by the end of the year. Um, but he's also stripping the State Department. They're cutting it back, uh, the employees, which I'm sure is a valid thing to do. There, There is a lot of... Uh, of excess uh, personnel, but at the same time, it's not functioning, and they're not reporting. Uh, I met ambassadors who said they hadn't filed reports in many months in critical countries, and the there are now some appointments are finally getting through uh, of people of new people to to take some of the key positions, which have remained vacant this whole year. Review for a second. You, you just described the Russian uh, footprint in terms of uh, Egypt, Sudan, etc. Iran has bases where? Where, where? where is their footprint that you described earlier? Well, they have, today, they dominate Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Yemen. They, they're playing a decisive role, but certainly their transnational highway that goes now from the Mediterranean to Tehran, that they, their militia 
are operative and and uh, in in Iraq dominant even in Syria they have the biggest presence and their long term presence there I think has been enshrined when Israel and has always demanded the removal of the of the Iranians and that they will not tolerate uh, Iran's uh, permanent presence because it is a permanent threat and the and what we're seeing now is that the the base as I said in Syria. In, they don't need bases in Iraq because it's their people who are there and, and just follow the course of Soleimani, and you know. Uh, and they are establishing Hezbollah presences all over the world. There's a global uh, hegemonic drive, uh, both by Turkey and by Iran, uh, and now they're in alliance with Russia in implementing it. Yeah, we sometimes forget what the ultimate goal is of those regimes. I mean, we... <laughs> We certainly can relate to you know the early part of World War II if you examine uh, what some of the leaders dreamt about. And in Iran, that's exactly. I mean, you would you would argue in Russia they're dreaming about the same thing as well, not just Iran, but uh, and maybe even Turkey the way you described it. It's like it's sort of like you know uh, uh, three uh, three governments with with the same ultimate goal. Uh, you know, maybe for some more realistic than others in terms of uh, a complete takeover of the Middle East and then beyond that. And uh, I think their interests will ultimately clash. And uh, that that we be should be more aggressive in in our role. The fact that we're not part of the Astana process, I think, is a, is a big mistake in leaving the vacuum. Um, I'm not saying that we and we are investing. We have military presence in Syria. We we are are doing it. This is a carryover from from the past. But the, you know, it's now one year into the administration, and I think it, the, what's important in the Middle East is the messages that you send of your engagement, and the president has visited, the president, uh, the vice president is going on a trip now. Um, he'll be in Israel during Hanukkah, uh, and there'll be a lighting at the Kotel. Again, another symbolically important uh, demonstration on, the, on their part about the, the uh, holy places in, in, in contrast to what we've seen at the U.N. Wow. Yeah, that is a, that is symbolic and important. Um, you think Israel is going to send a new ambassador to Jordan? You think that relationship will uh, will strengthen? I think the relationship has remained strong, and the king has said to us, all he wants to see is that this guy be put on trial. He said, "Let in Israel, he didn't ask that to be returned to Jordan." And it's a very, it's obviously very sensitive uh, for the morale of the Israeli security forces who, who you know, sitting in, in Arab countries or elsewhere. So I, I do believe that. It will be resolved in the interest of everybody to do that, uh, and hopefully sooner rather than later. And by the way, another development when we talk about the breaking of the isolation, that the, the, these dangers, but we should also look at remind about the positives, that Netanyahu has been invited December 11th to address the European Union foreign ministers. And I think you can look forward to a, a very interesting and, and tough speech. And China opened the cultural center in Tel Aviv this week, and it was reported that last year they invested, Chinese investments tripled in Israel to $16 billion. This is a huge amount of money. Um, uh, you know, we've seen other measures, 60 members of the European Parliament, uh, um, uh, to writing to Mogherini for Israel, and uh, um, so there are positive things, too, that we should never lose sight of. On the EU speech, you think he'll bring up the humanitarian situation in Syria? I think he can, and, and Israel has the most enviable, uh, I think, role 
in dealing with it with the thousands, maybe 4,000 or more Syrians who have been treated for free in Israeli hospitals, many with very, very, very vicious uh, wounds and, and uh, as a result of yeah. conflict or treating but if, of people. But if, the, but if the Europeans would get involved, they might be able to save hundreds of thousands of people, frankly. Well, they could have, and they should have created the safe zones and not have the massive uh, population shift and the, the, to deal with the ethnic, real ethnic cleansing, which is Sunnis out of these countries and may see even more of it as, as Iran builds this transnational link. They are removing anybody who might be opposition, i.e. Sunnis. Um, there is opposition from them, and, and I think that uh, within Syria... And they have successfully moved large populations and replaced them with Shia from Iraq, from uh, Afghanistan, and Iran. Finally, what do you think of President Trump's anti-Muslim video tweets? Uh, look, if you look at the source, it's troubling. Um, uh, but uh, I, I don't know if he actually looks at them before he, he sends it and what the purpose is. It doesn't, I don't think it helps make his case. And I think that uh, in some of them, I haven't seen the actual video, so I don't want to say, but uh, what I've heard about it and um, that they are, um, you know, very extreme. And the person who, who runs the site is known as having very extreme political views. Right. And I'm sorry for doing this with only a minute to go, but could you give us an update regarding this week's North Korean uh, missile launch? Yes, it's, it's, uh, it's a continuing series. They are, they are improving all the time their ballistic missile capacity, their nuclear capacity, and uh, the recognition this week by some of, of the fact that, that Iran had observers there, has observers each time there, that, this, that they're increasing cooperation uh, in these areas, and that, that every time North Korea improves it, it means that Iran will be able to improve theirs, and vice versa. Uh, so it's it's synergistic relationship between the two countries in the development of these things, the um, and the fact that you see the missiles uh, being transferred from Iran and being confirmed that, that these are Iranian missiles that the Houthis are firing at uh, Saudi Arabia. The high profile one was the one that went over Riyadh and aimed at the airport. But what if God forbid one actually hits yeah. within the city? And this is the eighth missile that was uh, that was uh, fired. And we know that the you know Iran Revolutionary Guard, Hezbollah, are operating with Houthis. They're training them. They're uh, providing weapons uh, 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 to them. So the increased cooperation, military cooperation, between North Korea and Iran is an added uh, dimension that, that doesn't get enough um, enough attention. Yeah, that's for sure. All right. Uh, thank you, Malcolm. Have a wonderful Shabbos. We'll speak again next week. Have a great Shabbos, everyone. Malcolm Holmline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us Fridays here at JM in the AM for the weekly update. And I want to thank those who've been acknowledging the first anniversary of our all digital format. Thank you, thank you, thank you. December the 1st of last year, the Malcolm Single Network became an all digital format with JM in the AM as its flagship program. I'm very proud of it. And we have been flying for the last 12 months, to say the least. Um, and I want to thank everybody out there for their incredible support in every single which way.